You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Calling all kid inventors. The Little Bits Droid Inventor Kit is here for the holidays. With this toy, you can make an R2 unit. And you can invent a custom droid that hasn't even been imagined yet. Check out the Little Bits Droid Inventor Kit at littlebits.com, Walmart, Amazon, and Apple. A science story, huh? It was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. This week we're bringing you two stories about what makes us who we are, from our appearance to our memories. Our first story this week is from Maya Puhara. It was recorded in September 2017 at Busboys and Poets 5th and K in Washington, D.C. The theme of the night was control. It was at the precise moment I found myself buying women's laxatives at a CVS in San Jose, California, that I realized I had more than just a tummy ache. You see, in the four years leading up to that very embarrassing purchase in a hot pink box, I had been focused on one thing, and that one thing was not my health. It was on finishing a PhD in neuroscience. I had finally mustered up the courage to tell my advisor that I wouldn't be doing a postdoc, and I saved the worst bit of news for last, which is that I would be applying for a science writing internship in Washington, D.C., Uh, that would be starting that summer, which is why I needed to finish the degree in time, so that I would be free to go on to do whatever it is I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And so, um, you know, all of this kind of felt like the way I would imagine it must feel to tell your conservative dad that you're going on tour with the Grateful Dead. Um, No matter what, you're just gonna be a source of constant disappointment from that point forward. And so, Uh, I prepared in the mirror, I went over what I was going to tell him, and, you know, I wasn't just running away from lab, I had a plan. Um, I had prepared a set of calendar pages, and I, in our second worst meeting that we'd ever have, I handed over those sweaty calendar pages um, that chronicled February through May. Um, They told of two data sets that would be analyzed and written up for publication, and they told of the writing timeline leading up to my proposed defense date in May. So I had it all planned out. He sifted through the calendar pages, and after a really, really brutal round of questioning to make sure I'd thought everything through, he finally said, okay. Relieved, I got up to walk out, and on my way out, he added, you know, this is gonna be a rough few months for you. (laughs) And so those words became my fuel. I was determined to prove him wrong. Um, An effort with the sense of newfound blind determination, I skipped out on one very important thing in order to meet my deadlines, and that thing was lunchtime. 
You see, if I skipped out on lunchtime, I'd have more time during the day to actually work on what I needed to. And um, because I was blasting right through lunchtime to crunch those numbers, I would reward myself for all that hard work at the end of the day with these big Wisconsin-style greasy meals, and I'd wash them down with a couple of bottles of beer. And that went on for a few months, and I slowly just started to develop the slightest twinge, just the littlest bit of pain in my abdomen that with my large mammalian brain, I did a really good job of ignoring. <laughs> that is until that fateful night in San Jose. I was there at a conference with my boyfriend at the time, now my husband, Ben, and not two nights into the conference, I woke up with like this sharp, horrible, stabbing pain, a pain that I couldn't ignore anymore. And so I turned to him, I was really scared, and so I woke him up and I said, what do I do? I don't, I don't know what this is, I've never had this before. And um, he was really sleepy, so he just kind of turned around and said, I don't know, I'll just maybe walk it off and take a poop. <laughs> See, our love language, um, it's talking about our bowel movements, and so to me that was totally normal. I took his advice and I walked around the hotel room and um, tried to take a poop with no luck. And that's when we went to go buy the laxatives. I took the laxatives and tried to go back to sleep and after a couple of hours of fitful rest, I got up not with an urge to poop, but with an urge instead to reach into my stomach and pull out whatever was causing me the worst pain I'd ever felt in my entire life. I left the hospital after what would be the first of many hospital overnights with two pieces of paper about acute pancreatitis, which I'd never heard of before. Um, inflammation of the pancreas, but no clear reason about what was actually causing it. Soon after that, I couldn't keep any meals down, and the pain got so bad that I was forced to get most of my caloric intake from things like fruit juices and jello, which, I mean, a middle school version of myself would have loved that diet, and <laughs> I guess it was appropriate because by the time I lost all the weight I lost, I looked like a middle school version of myself. Um, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where I was going to school at the time, is a teaching hospital. So during one of my longer stays there, um, a group of residents crowded around my bed as the senior doctor told them that I was a mysterious gastrointestinal case. My pancreatitis remained unexplained. <sighs> to me, it felt truly absurd that these people who had all of this collective knowledge among them couldn't tell me what was wrong with me any more than a few days of frantic internet searches could. I was terrified. And because I presented with some of the symptoms of patients with severe alcoholism, a lot of doctors told me to stop drinking. I hadn't touched a drink in months. This frustrated me to no end. I really just wanted an answer. Um, and because I was so sick, I eventually had to tell my advisor. I had to confront him and tell him that in person in what would be the actual worst meeting we've ever had. Um, I went to his office and I told him, no, I didn't know what was wrong with me. I didn't have a clear diagnosis. And no, I didn't know when I'd be back in lab. And uh, no, I, was, I hadn't heard about that science writing internship yet. And uh, no, I'm not gonna finish in time to defend by May. And um, as I told him all of this, I was met with a stony stare and a slight whiff of I told you so in the air. And um, I couldn't help it, I just started crying. And I had prided myself on never crying in front of Mike, not once, no matter how bad our conversations got. Um, but at that point, 
Instead of him coming around from his side of the desk to pat me on the back and tell me, you know, everything's going to be okay, we'll work something out, just focus on your health. He just kind of sat there in silence while I cried. I left his office feeling like a total and complete failure. At the lowest point I got, I ended up calling one of the doctors and kind of just sobbing into the phone and saying, am I going to eat anything ever again? Am I ever going to feel better? And I remember, well, in hindsight, I must have sounded like that kid in the viral video who was under the influence of anesthesia and was just like, is this going to be forever? Because the doctor just laughed at me and said, you're going to be fine. But looking down at my knobby hands, I'm sure he's seen worse, but I didn't know what better looked like at that point. Um, so after several needle pokes and blood tests and hospital stays later, I finally, finally got a diagnosis, celiac disease. Celiac disease is an autoimmune disorder that affects uh, anybody who ingests gluten. Basically, the body attacks the small intestine in the presence of a protein called gluten. And gluten is found in a lot of things like pasta, bread, beer, soy sauce, so basically anything delicious. And um, yeah, it's true. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, by the time, unfortunately, by the time my diagnosis uh, was given to me, the inflammation from my pancreas had spread to my gallbladder and my liver, and I had to have my gallbladder removed. The reason it took so long for me to get a diagnosis was because I was in the less than 1% of patients who was expressing the symptoms that I had. Um, most patients with celiac have, like, really bad gastrointestinal symptoms that I won't go into because you're eating. Um, but suffice it to say that because of that, it took a long time. And um, it turned out that the combination of genes I had from a Hispanic mother and an Indian father incurred greater vulnerability to the disease. And things like anxiety, stress, and a poor diet only made it worse. So to put it another way, nature and nurture had a really shitty party in my small intestine, and I was their special guest. So, yeah. But through all of that, you know, once things got better with the support of the best partner, friends, and family, and they're all the right treatments, I started to get better. And I also found out I got accepted to the science writing internship, and I'd be going to Washington, D.C. that summer. So really, things weren't all that bad in the end. And throughout all this experience, what I learned was that things like good health and important milestones are not things that somebody give you permission for. They're things that you give yourself. And because I'd set a milestone I really wasn't ready for, I only set myself back more in the long run. So as I packed up my things to go for that summer, I came to terms with the fact that the brain work would be there when I got back. It was time I started paying more attention to my gut. Thank you. <laughs> That was Maya Puhara. Maya received her PhD in neuroscience from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where she developed a passion for science outreach, science communication, and promoting women and underrepresented minorities in STEM. She's a postdoc at the National Institutes of Health, studying brain regions that are critical for helping us regulate our emotions, learn about rewards, and make flexible, adaptive choices. Stay tuned for the next story after this message from our sponsor. Virtue Labs is a new hair care brand with the goal of giving everyone the best hair scientifically possible. 
That means more bounce, more shine, more strength, and more life for your hair. And right now, you can only find it in Virtue Labs' line of shampoos, conditioners, and styling products. Not to mention, each formula was created to address specific issues like heat damage, frizz, or thinning hair. In clinical testing, Virtue found a 67% reduction in frizz after four washes and a 95% reparation of split ends after five applications. Ready to experience it? Listeners can now try Virtue at 10% off and get free shipping with the code COLLIDER. Visit VirtueLabs.com to place your order. It's time to start treating our hair with a little more humanity. It's time for Virtue. Welcome back. Our second story today is from Whitney Henry. It was recorded June 2017 at Oberon in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The theme of that night was sweet and sour. I would like to begin with a diary entry from my first year in Boston. Today, I feel trapped, forced to put on a facade, paste on a smile, and breathe. I think to myself, I can't let them down. I must be strong. But today feels unbearable as my walls crumble. Once invisible tears, now visible. You see, the first few years of graduate school were some of the most challenging, yes, intellectually, but more so psychologically. I was surrounded by some of the best minds in the world, astute and intellectually groomed for the rigorous coursework that lay ahead. Their confidence was palpable and only served to remind me of my own insecurity. Surely Harvard must have made a mistake by accepting me. It just didn't make sense. How could the same girl who once made her bed using a thin piece of yellow foam laid flat against the floor of a wooden house be in such a privileged environment? I was born the fifth of 11 siblings on the small but beautiful island of St. Lucia. My biological mother was a living maid of humble circumstances, and my absentee father, let's just say he was a man who always seemed drunk the few times I saw him. Life was really simple, and my resources very limited. I can remember the smell of the kerosene lamps that lit our house just to save money on electricity, and the sound of the static whenever you adjusted the antenna that shot out from the back of our small black and white television. Really, my chance of a successful life was slim. But then came the Bird family. My biological mother worked for the Bird family from the time that I was born, and they had grown to love me as their own, eventually adopting me. Now, while I love my biological family, the bond that I had with my adopted family was undeniable. And it was really heartbreaking when my mom left them and to pursue another job. One of the few early childhood memories that I can recall is a scene of my three-year-old self. So little Whitney, stuffing her few belongings into a washed-out pillowcase, insisting that I be returned back to my adopted family. My adopted mom was the epitome of a prayerful woman. 
and in my eyes, a modern-day Mother Teresa. I've lost count of the number of times that I have bumped into a homeless person voraciously slurping a cup of tea on our front steps, or the surprising extra pair of shoes that made it on our shopping list. Really, at heart, I'm still her little princess, dressed in frilled dresses, socks and stockings, and matching satin ribbons. My adopted mom truly made my childhood special. I remember how I loved the way she made the words come to life when she read to me. Somehow it just didn't sound the same when I read it. I remember how she used to spend almost $20 a day just to send me to the best high school on the island, which was over an hour away. We would wake up at 5 a.m. every day. At that time, it's still dark, the air is crisp and cool, and the only people awake are the local breadman and a few older ladies, still clad in head ties and roller sets, and of course, the occasional stray dog. I remember how she used to wait up with me and place a cup of tea and a sandwich on my desk on those long school nights. You see, from a very early age, I saw and acknowledged the sacrifices that my parents made in order to give me the best opportunities that they could afford. And this instilled in me a strong desire to excel academically. Now, don't get me wrong. Though financially more stable, my daughter parents only had a high school education. My mom a seamstress and my dad an electrician. But education, discipline and empathy were staples in our home. But then our lives changed in 2003 when our house got destroyed. The image of the blazing fire lining the hallways of my house as I rushed out onto the street will forever be burnt into my memory. The fire had devoured every childhood picture, every favorite book or high school memory. In an instant, we had lost everything. And to make matters worse, I was almost done with my secondary school education in St. Lucia, and it infuriated me that I had no foreseeable plans for the future. Now, while we were not poor, we just did not have the means to send me off to university. In fact, I had my eyes set on a scholarship to Cuba to study medicine. It was one of the few full scholarships available to St. Lucians to go off to university. But it so happened that when I was done with school and graduated and ready to apply, it was not made available. So I got a job as a public high school teacher, determined to work tirelessly until an opportunity arose. And eventually one did. I was granted a full academic scholarship to pursue my Bachelor of Science at Grambling State University in Louisiana, in the United States, a place I had never been to. Crazy as it may sound, I loved being a student. And getting the opportunity to go to college was like a dream come true. You know, one of the advantages of coming to school here was that I was suddenly exposed to the fascinating and intriguing realm of scientific research. With each science class, from analytical chemistry to cell and molecular biology, my enthusiasm for research began to be significantly piqued. But the uncertainty of my future plagued me once again in my last year of college. So there I am, seated across my professor's desk, staring incredulously at the list of acceptances for institutions that I had never dreamt of attending. Why settle, he says. You belong at these schools. Yes, it will be challenging, but give yourself the opportunity. 
And so with great trepidation, I found myself signing the offer letter from Harvard. But upon arriving at graduate school, my confidence plummeted to an all-time low. Each class was a dreaded brew of anxiety and fear of being found out. I distinctly remember calling my home at 3 a.m. on what felt like the most dreadful day in the late fall of 2010. The phone rang for forever. Finally, my mom picked up. Between uncontrollable sobs and deep breaths, I managed to blurt out that I didn't belong here, that I wanted to go home, and that I was sorry. Sorry for disappointing everyone. I think it broke my mom's heart to hear me sound so defeated. She truly believed that I had what it took to achieve greatly, and that despite where we came from, I too deserve to be trained among the best. She instilled faith and life into me. And she reminded me of the strength and talent that lied within me. And she was right. Though it took me several years before I could really realize that. You see, all the accolades that I accrued in graduate school and all the praises from my peers and mentors just wasn't enough proof. I think the magnitude of my accomplishments really sunk in on graduation day. And to celebrate with me was one of my biological aunts, my adopted family, and an old childhood friend from St. Lucia. There they were, beaming proudly amidst my colleagues on the grounds of Harvard University. In a split second, it felt like my seemingly disparate worlds had finally met. I was part of their world as much as I was part of the Harvard family. The crowd cheered as I walked across the stage to pick up my doctoral diploma. It didn't matter where I came from, what I looked like, or what I sounded like. For once, I actually felt like I belonged. Despite the sweat and tears, I had made it. I couldn't help but remember all the mentors I had. Each one strategically placed to help me navigate through life's journey, through each of my worlds. As my mom helped me out of my crimson red regalia, I couldn't help but feel immensely grateful for her love, her strength, and her sacrifices have made me who I am. Thank you. That was Whitney Henry. Originally from St. Lucia, Whitney relocated to the U.S. after receiving a full presidential academic scholarship from Grambling State University. She earned a Ph.D. in biological and biomedical sciences from Harvard University and is currently a postdoctoral associate in the lab of Dr. Robert Weinberg at the Whitehead Institute for Biomedical Research. When she's not in the lab, Whitney enjoys mentoring and traditional Caribbean dancing. If you enjoyed today's story or a fan of the podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon.com. If you sign up to donate $10 a month or more, we'll list your name in our show programs across the country. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Company Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is directed by Liz Neely and Aaron Barker, with help from our many vendors and volunteers. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Shane Hanlon, Miriam Zeringholm, Christine Gentry, and Ari Daniel. 
The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders, and the theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to The Crane and Caveat for hosting these shows, and to Ada, my dog, who is still the best dog in the world. She's also a beagle mix. We think maybe part chihuahua. We're not sure. Thanks for listening. Virtue Labs is a hair care brand with a vision to give everyone their best hair with the help of an incredible new protein called Alpha Keratin 60KU. Alpha Keratin 60KU is a whole human protein that's identical to the keratin in your own hair. As a result, it can fill in cracks from damage to change your hair's quality and appearance forever. Try Alpha Keratin 60KU exclusively in Virtue Labs' shampoos, conditioners, and styling products. Just visit virtuelabs.com and use the code COLLIDER to try Virtue at 10% off and get free shipping.